0: She's a journalist and New York Times best-selling author.
1: I'll give you the moon, all right? I'll take it.
0: He's a record label owner and entrepreneur. They're both into skinny margaritas, and these Seattleites
2: don't mind getting caught in the rain. I'm Sarah Gio.
1: And I'm Brandon Ebell.
2: And this is the Mod About You podcast. Are you ready to have a whole lot of fun?
1: Let's do this. Hey, everyone. Brandon and Sarah here. We're in Seattle. Hey, guys. And we have a very special guest today. New York Times number one best-selling author who's written dozens of books, sold over three million copies of his books, was one of the founders of eHarmony.
2: No big deal.
1: Been on Oprah, 2020, The View. He's a huge motivational speaker, and he also did a little premarital counseling for Sarah and Brandon. Yeah. He put that in his <laughs> resume. <laughs> yeah,
2: guys, Les has devoted his entire career focusing on what makes relationships work, and what makes them last. Over the years, I've interviewed him in my magazine work for various publications, and he always has great things to say. We knew we wanted to get him on the podcast. And
1: we're not worthy. <laughs> he is an intellectual heavyweight, to say the least. Yes.
2: Yeah. We think you guys are really going to enjoy our conversation with him. So here we are with Les Parrott, a renowned Seattle based psychologist and author who has spent his career studying my favorite topic. Love and relationships. <laughs> I'm here with Brandon as well, and we are just so excited to be here. In fact, it brings back memories of the time that we sat on your couch, Les, and you so kindly offered time to us to give us some good counsel before we got engaged. And now we're traveling down the path towards marriage in July.
0: Yeah, congrats.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We learned so much with you, um, truly. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about some of the things that we learned in all of those sessions. Oh, and cool. Yes. And, and it has been incredibly important and instrumental to Brandon and I. So I thought we would start by asking you about... You you have spent your career studying relationships as a psychologist, as a researcher, as a counselor, as a professor, as an author... And I wondered if this was what you, you know, sought out to do right out of college, if you thought, I just really love love and people and I want to like get to the (laughs) bottom of this or did you fall into relationships?
0: I'll tell you something. It wasn't that, it wasn't a direct path, but in fact, out of graduate school, I spent the first two years in medical psychology, which was definitely not about love. It was about tragedy for sure.
2: Very different. Yeah, Yeah.
0: But right from the beginning, early on, like in high school, I knew I wanted to write in fact, I remember I had this assignment to write a, a report on the Oregon Trail, and it was supposed to be like I don't know five or six pages, and I wrote 50 pages. Like I just was like in love with writing immediately, and so uh, I knew that was going to be a part of my future. And then out of graduate school, I went to the University of Washington School of Medicine and started doing this work, this, this fellowship in medical psych on the burn unit and on head injury stuff. And, and it was just like I was coming home every night telling Leslie these incredibly tragic stories. And somewhere around that time, I think it was in about February, this was our first year, I was also teaching at a local university. And some students said, hey, would you come over to the residence hall and speak to us? and this is the title they gave us, on how to fall in love without losing your mind. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and Leslie, she's a marriage and family therapist. And we said, yeah, yeah, of course. I said, how many students should be there? And said, well, maybe if, if everybody shows up, maybe 20 or so on the, on the floor. And so we walked over there, it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night to do this thing. And there was this long line outside of the residence hall. And I thought, man, what's going on here? And uh, walked in. Well, it turns out they were all lined up. They came from other residence halls for this little talk. And it wasn't because of us. We hadn't, you know, we we were brand new to the university. Uh, but it was the topic. How to it's fall in love. It's a great
2: title. I f- did you ever title a book that? That's yeah, a-
0: I titled a chapter in a book that. That is you know, so great. Yeah. I love yeah, it. falling in love without losing your mind. And uh, we also have a chapter on how to break up and stay in one piece, too, in that same oh, book. Oh, but, but anyway, we so we showed up, and and Leslie and I left, and we thought, the, the need is so palpable. They couldn't even get into a place to, to hear us talk about it. We had to move to a different building. And that really became kind of a pivot point, a turning point for us in our professional kind of trajectory. And that spring, we launched an event that we called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Hmm. And again, we had this incredible turnout. And that eventually turned into a book and that eventually turned into an interview with Oprah and away we go. So, wow. Yeah. Wow.
2: Well, of course, we became acquainted in our days at Seattle Pacific University yeah. and then through my writing for magazines. And you have been a, a, a lovely source for many of my articles over the years for Women's magazines on topics of relationships, and then we connected again through my path with Brandon. And you know, of all the people to be able to connect with for some counseling sessions before we get married, it was such an honor to work with you. And what I loved so much was that you had us take this proprietary sort of questionnaire that you developed, mm-hmm. and I want you to talk about that. But. Brandon and I each were instructed by you to take this quiz privately and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then you would go through the results with us. And there's, you know, a million questionnaires and quizzes you can encounter in your life. And, you know, how much will it teach you? I don't know. Perhaps I was a little skeptical, but the process of going through that was fascinating for us. Mm -hmm. And what we learned, as you recall, is that we are so similar in so many ways. And we knew that, but we also were like, whoa, and you had this sort of diagram of this almost like a flower or a petals chart or something and Brandon and I were on the same petal. Mm-hmm. Like it struck me that okay, yeah, we're both so passionate and we're both so, you know, outgoing in these ways and and then we we discussed what that meant from there. But maybe you could talk about that a little bit because I think our listeners would love to find out how they could take the same questionnaire and learn to better their own relationship.
0: Well, one of the things you hear psychologists often say is awareness is curative once you become aware of something, then you can do something about it and one of the best ways to become more self aware is to take a, a personality assessment of some kind and there's a million of them out there, and lots of them are really good and uh, because of our background, we were you know with e harmony from the start you know, when it was an idea at a kitchen table in in los angeles and and so somewhere as that company was taking off in such a successful way, I said to Neil, the founder, I said, man, I said, someday I want to do the same kind of magic. I want to bring that to a tool for couples that are already matched, you know, married couples, engaged couples. And so eventually we did that. We got pretty busy with Harmony for a long time, but eventually we built this thing. The one that you took is called Simbus, S-Y-M-B-I-S, which mm-hmm. links right back to that title I just mentioned, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, S-Y-M-B-I-S. And uh, so... We launched that, oh man, f- six years ago now. And uh, it's used all over the world and, and uh, by counselors and coaches and chaplains and you know clergy. And so we also wanted to have a tool that was for anybody and everybody, something that could scale. And so we have a version of that called Better Love and people can learn about it at betterlove.com. And it takes, oh, maybe 15 minutes to answer the questions. You each do it separately, as you Mm -hmm. know. And it instantly generates this uh, 10-page report on your relationship. And I know that probably some of our listeners are going, well, that's like the last thing I want is a report (laughs) on my relationship. And so don't think of it as a report like you are thinking you're getting graded or something. It's really a a customized roadmap for lifelong love. That's the report.
1: So how is Simbus and or Better Love different than some of the other tests that are out there.
0: Well, we're the only test that we know of that takes two personalities and puts them together, that weaves that together. And so when you took the assessment, you know, you got a page that has your personality on one side and and the partner's personality on the other side and the paragraph that it has there has 40,000 variables, which means that paragraph is yours. Nobody else will ever have that paragraph. Even if you're in the same, as you said, the pedal, we call that the pinwheel of personality up there. And if you're in the same little area, you'll still have unique paragraphs as Mm -hmm. the two of you did. So you can be very similar, but you're still going to have differences. And then on the next page, of course, we take that and weave it together to show you, here's the strengths that the two of you bring together in your relationship. Here's how your relationships combine in chemistry to make decisions together and those kinds of things. So... Yeah, it's pretty fun.
2: We thought it was so fascinating. We loved it. I wanted to go back to saving your marriage before it starts because Mm -hmm. that's how, you know, initially I learned of you. You know, I I didn't attend the seminar, but I know lots of couples who have. And I bet over the years you have seen the gamut of couples who have made it work and couples who have not. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it pops into your mind, if there's a few you know, traits or strategies of the couples that have lasted from your earliest seminars and the ones that haven't, if there's some pitfalls that you could point out that you would describe for success and for failure.
0: Sure, yeah. Well, one of the things we know is that the couples that do well together have several kind of converging things. One is that they've known each other for a while, at least a minimum of two years. So, and most people are like, what's the magic on two years? Why not one year? Well, it's because after two years, it's pretty difficult to hide anything from another person. Mm. One year you can, you can kind of cover up a a gambling addiction, for example, or what have you. Two years, that gets tougher to do. So there's longevity. And then uh, secondly, that the relationship has relatively a smooth path not breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together, that's not a good indicator. Also that they're over the age of uh, 22 or 23, that just has to do with maturity. And then beyond some things, I could go down the list on some of those things, but then beyond that is just skills and no big surprise here, communication Mm -hmm. is number one. And number two is conflict management. Hmm. If you get a, a lock on those two skills, life gets a whole lot easier.
2: Can you get a lock on it? Can you train yourself to be a better fighter in relationships, to resolve things better? Or are you just born with certain skills and, you know?
0: Yeah, great question. No, everybody can get better at it. It is a skill you develop. Based on your personality, you might have some leanings that make you look like a better person better uh, managing these skills of, of conflict. But that has a lot to do with the chemistry of the person. You know, Leslie and I, when we would do marriage seminars for years and we talk about conflict and we do this thing around the country called fight night these days. And Fight night. Yeah.
2: I want to hear about that. And
0: uh, yeah, it's two Put rounds. Put on your gloves. <laughs> 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 two rounds. And the first round is why. Why do we fight with the person we love the most? Round two is how. How to fight with the person we love the most. And the promise of the whole night is to show you that conflict is the price we pay for deeper intimacy. If you know how to fight a good fight, you can actually draw closer together. The goal is not to avoid conflict, it's to know how to fight.
2: I love that.
0: Sometimes
1: I like to avoid conflict. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is very male.
1: I just want to go to my happy place. Is it just male? I don't know. Well,
2: okay. One of my best friends, has this thing she says about conflict. And now that we're going to conflict, I want to talk about this, but she calls it rupture and repair and how that brings you closer. And I actually think that's epic. I love that because it is, it's a rupture of, it's a break of something the way it is. And then you repair it and you're better for that repair. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of times people think conflict is bad. And if there is a fight or something, it's uh oh boy, it's a doomed relationship. But I feel like the truth is, you Know, it's normal and you know it's unavoidable and it's how you deal with it and yeah. how you grow through it because you become out better if you do a successful right. job with it.
0: Yeah, there's only a very small segment of the population, like it would be less than 5% of couples that really truly don't fight. And I, I didn't understand this. We wrote this book called The Good Fight and in the research on that, before that time, before we wrote this book, The Good Fight, I always just assumed those couples were just lying, the, the, You know, that surely you fight. But if you have a certain kind of personality where you're non-expressive and there's certain people that are like that, you're just, you know, and, and if you're married to one, you kind of wonder, are you okay? And like, why? Well, <laughs>
2: Who are these people? You know. <laughs> I don't, I've never met one. This is so <laughs> both interesting. Both of you are very expressive,
0: but <laughs> yes. there are people. And Leslie and I are both expressive. But there's people that, uh, and it's it's not wrong. And half the population is this way where there's friction, you withdraw and you want to know, you want to figure out you know, you kind of rearrange the furniture in your own head, and then you come back and you might not have to process it. And that's that's fine. You yeah. know? Uh, but the growing edge for those people is to get it out there because one of the things, and this is surprising that most people don't know, one of the traits of a healthy marriage is that uh, you can complain. Now, that's different than criticizing. Criticism almost always begins with you. You always make a slate, you never pick up your clothes. Whereas complaining is, hey, I, f- I feel really frustrated when relate to something that really matters to me. Hmm. And that sounds like it's just semantics. But it's not, it's authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have authenticity in the relationship. So complaining, not is so sharing, bad.
2: is sharing how you're feeling.
0: Yeah, and that's not a bad thing.
1: I'm kind of defensive in nature. So I think if Sarah complains, I'm like, Well, I'm sorry if you're not happy. And she's like, Well, I'm just saying that I
2: <laughs> see Brandon? Uh, see, see? I told you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, that might be because it feels more like a, a criticism to you than a complaint. And so that, that's the distinction. But research actually at the University of Washington, John Gottman has showed this time and time again at his Love Lab, that you can complain and it, it's a good thing. It's a good mm. healthy indicator. Criticism, not so much. That's yeah. toxic for a relationship. Okay,
2: girls, you heard it here first. We need to figure out how to complain nicely and not <laughs> criticize. <laughs>
0: Okay. But it's the couples. Be, are
1: you complaining right now or criticizing me? I'm I'm a
0: little confused. <laughs> We're gonna use this. Going, oh, you believe C's, me, this will be C's. the next two this years. This is
2: <laughs> not a criticism. It's a complaint.
0: It's not that you categorize it. It's that you feel it. Right. You feel it. And it's not. It's yes. not that you go, hey, is this a criticism or a complaint? You're gonna know because of the way it feels, and and the person's heart behind it. But anyway, those those people that are low on expressiveness when it comes to this and are highly flexible in their personality, some folks are just like, you know, they can change their where do you want to go for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't care wherever you want to go, you know? And other people like, where do you want to go for dinner? Seafood, get in the car, let's go. I mean, they Mm -hmm. have an agenda. If you're on the side that's totally flexible and you're non-expressive, you just don't have that many fights. Yeah. Cause it's life is just kind of like that for you. Now, if you're highly expressive, you don't have to wonder, you know, if you're married to somebody or with somebody that is highly expressive, you don't have to wonder whether something is bothering them because they'll tell you. Yeah. They will put it out there and they <laughs> and then if they are not as flexible as some people, we call these folks competitive fighters. And the competitive fighters, which I'm one by the way, I have plenty of agendas, I know how I like to have things done and all that kind of stuff and I'll put my agenda out there. Leslie's very flexible. She's highly expressive but she's what we would call a conciliatory, not a, not a competitive fighter, but a conciliatory fighter. And so those people that are, are really low on expressiveness and very flexible, the growing edge for them is to be more authentic and mm. that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, all that gets to what we call your fight type and remember how I said awareness is curative? Once you become aware of your fight type, then you can do something about it yeah. and that's a big key to having healthy conflict.
2: Real quick, tell us how our listeners can tune in to this Fight Club situation.
0: <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned Fight Club because that's how our whole seminar starts is, is with Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And we had some people that are geniuses with uh, video put us in the movie with Brad Pitt. And so we're in the basement with Brad when he's giving the rules for for Fight Club. That's how the whole thing starts. But yeah, if people are interested then go to lessandlesley.com and look up the book, The Good Fight. Nice. They can also uh, find the assessment we've been talking about Better Love there, but more direct is betterlove.com. But Great. Less and A and Less and Leslie.com.
2: Perfect. And by the way, Leslie is Les's lovely wife, if you have not figured that out already.
0: Yeah, we have the same name, so it's a little it's pretty epic. But I go by yeah. Les, she goes by Leslie, but we're both named Leslie. And it's even more complicated because I'm the third, my dad's name is Leslie, my grandfather's name is Leslie I'm married to Leslie. Oh my goodness
2: I love it so much. Yeah,
0: that's why we named our first son John. (laughs) Oh
2: my gosh. (laughs) Well you mentioned John Gottman who is this epic researcher in Seattle, a colleague of yours Mm -hmm. and um, I have been aware of his research for years and years and fascinated by it and I wanted to ask you about it because I don't think everybody is up to speed on his stuff but basically the premise is And he is very famous for saying that he can sit with a couple for a certain amount of time and predict the way they interact, predict their outcome for success in marriage. And I wondered if you could break that down for our listeners and tell me your thoughts on the success of that research.
0: Yeah, well, John has probably done more yeoman work on conflict in uh, relationships than anybody on the planet for, well, well over 35 years. He's retired now, but... He has this thing called the Love Lab at the University of Washington where he invited couples to come in and he took them up to all kinds of biofeedback equipment and observed them. And, and through that process, he's been able to predict with a 94% accuracy rate whether a couple will succeed or fail in their marriage based solely on how they fight. Not whether they fight, not what they fight about, not how often they fight, but how they fight. 94 times out of 100, he's accurate. And I've been in the love lab with him. I've seen him do it. It's an incredible process. And so anyway, what's he looking for? He calls these, he looks for four things. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are four things that usher in doom to a relationship. And the first is criticism. Mm-hmm. Which
1: there we, we go again. Right? Yes,
0: And that's how every conflict begins with a critical comment. And that leads to number two, which is defensiveness, which is only natural after you've been criticized. You put up your, your shield, you put on your armor. You it's a vicious yourself, cycle, right? Right? Yeah. And by the way, one of the things this research has shown, we always think that if we defend ourselves and go, wait, 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 look, I'm, I'm a good person. This is, you're totally wrong. We think that's going to end the conflict. It never does, never, ever does. And instead it exacerbates the conflict. It gets even bigger. So it just adds fuel to the fire. So uh, criticism, defensiveness... And then the third one is contempt and contempt is anything that makes you feel about an inch tall. It's just belittling, it's usually sarcastic, you know, hey, way to go Einstein, you know, regular genius, aren't you? you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Or without even uttering a word, it's when we roll our eyes at our spouse. In fact, I remember being at lunch once with John Gottman, and, and he said we ought to pass laws in Congress against contempt in marriage. It's so lethal. It's so toxic. It's like oh my
2: gosh, I love that
0: poison on your relationship. And then that leads to number four, which is stonewalling. Where if you don't leave physically, you kind of just withdraw, you become like this stonewall. And it's like, what do you want me to say? I'll say it, you know. And and that those are the four things.
2: Is that like the silent treatment, you know, when you're yeah. just sort of out for
0: Yeah, just your heart's not in the relationship yeah. anymore. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we all have these. Some of our listeners are going, Oh, this doesn't sound good because I have some of this stuff. Hey, we all have some of this stuff. What he's looking for are those couples that don't know how to short circuit the system. And yeah. so a critical common is maintenance, like a locomotive coming through their living room. They don't know how to slow the thing down. So sit aside the next half hour because we're going to be in conflict. Those couples are the ones that he's looking for that uh, have real difficulties. Most couples have some tools in their tool bag to learn how to you know, curb the, the criticism or, or own their piece of the pie You know, when, when you're inclined to be defensive. You know, I have a friend who has this crazy little statement. He says, humble pie is a pastry that's never tasty. <laughs> and that's what it's all about. It's like swallowing your pride because yeah. that's what it comes down to, right? In conflict yeah. is pride. So, But yeah, that's John's research. Incredible, right? It's just been uh, transformative for so many people. He does so much good for, for couples.
2: So fascinating. You know, one of the things that I always think about that my mom told me is that in her own like prediction of, you know, couples success rates is she's noticed that couples who correct each other's speech are like, you know, it's a no, no. It's like mm-hmm. they're going to, they're on the train to divorceville. <laughs> so I grew up sort of remembering that's that. Criticism. Yeah, it's criticism. Mm-hmm. And so my mom would never correct the way my dad mispronounced
1: something. Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm very aware of but that. But she
1: did back channel it with you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she might've, but that's why you have daughters. So, <laughs> Um, I am aware of that. And I think that, thank God that my mom and dad are aware of those things. They've been married for a long time and I'm 41. Oh gosh, I just say that? Editor, delete that right now. But they've made it work and they have a very loving, successful relationship. And I feel like it's almost sort of like epic that they have yeah, have been awesome. so happy together we've been talking about conflict. And I think one of the biggest takeaways I had from our sessions, I mean, there were so many, but one of the things that has really stuck with me is is our discussions of how men and women fight differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's so helpful for women to really break this down and think about it because we truly have a different fighting style. And so, for example, you know, a woman gets in a fight with another woman and she wants to be face to face with her and sit with her at a coffee shop and discuss like how her feelings are hurt. And the other woman is like, my feelings are hurt too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're sort of like, they're sharing and venting and they're repairing. And I feel like men are the complete opposite. A man and a man gets in a fight and they just are like out, they like depart and then they get back together the next day for a football game and everything's good. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, sorry about that. Yeah, thanks, Mm -hmm. bye. Yeah, it's all good. (laughs) Let's like have some- Probably
1: a little bit of an exaggeration. Okay, fine, but it's a little bit
2: where- There's some truths in that. Yeah, so then, you know, I think when you put a woman and a man together in a fight, you have the woman who wants to get face-to-face with a man and talk and discuss Mm -hmm. and rehash and share her feelings. And that can add fuel to his fire and to make the situation kind of escalate even more. Mm -hmm. So I I have found, you know, in life and with my friends that women sort of want, to chase after the fight and talk about it and solve it and men maybe aren't ready right away and need their time to defuse. Would mm. you say that's true?
0: I would not completely agree with that. Okay. Let's go back to just the fundamental gender difference between us as communicators. Uh, and we know this from research, that women, the, the number one goal for a woman in conversation, uh, well, let's start with men. The number one goal for a man in conversation is what researchers call report talk. Uh, In other words, a man likes to be in the know, he wants the conversation, he doesn't need all the fluff, he doesn't need all the bunny trails, he just wants the bottom line. And every woman within the sound of our voices right now has heard a man say, uh, does this story have an end, right? Uh, What's the point? What's the goal, right? Uh, Get to the bottom line. And it's because the man wants the information. I'll literally come home some evenings and say to Leslie, hey, give me the report, you know, did you pick up Mm -hmm. the mail? Uh, what's for dinner? Do the boys have homework? What's it, you know? Give me the mm-hmm. information I need to function in this home as a man tonight. Right? That's kind of how it feels. Whereas a woman, the number one goal for a woman in conversation is not report talk, but what researchers call rapport talk. Mm. So a woman, the, the words are kind of the background to whether or not we're connecting or not. And so for a woman, the conversation, and that's why you'll see women sometimes leaning in and holding hands. And the whole point is building this web of connectedness in the conversation, whatever the conversation is about. Mm -hmm. And so... There's definitely some fundamental gender differences. There's a big gender gap. We certainly have differences when it comes to problem solving. We know that men want to fix problems, women want to explore problems and and things like that. So that contributes to exactly what you're saying about the gender differences when Mm -hmm. it comes to conflict. But you can't ignore the differences in personality on top of that. Because there's some women that are conflict avoidant and some women that are competitive fighters. And so it's a combination of those two things. Very
2: true. I once was in a room with about eight or 10 women in Los Angeles with a friend of mine. And my friend is a therapist and she somehow had the idea to ask everyone in the room, the women, how they valued romantic love. And about half said they could care less about it. Mm. Literally wasn't important at all. Mm. And my friend and I rose our hand that we actually cared about it as a top priority. Right. And of course, I mean, I write, stories that are based in love and you know, I'm super cheesy and whimsical. So yeah, and so is she. But you're right, there is that element of, of personality that plays into all of this. Yeah.
0: So And that that's why we often say there's never been a marriage like yours before and there never will be again because you take your unique personality traits and you combine them with your partner's personality traits and you create a chemistry that has never existed. See,
2: Brandon, this is revolutionary what we're doing right now, (laughs) July 20th, 2019.
1: So you said um, an interesting comment about men wanting to fix things and uh, oddly enough, Sarah, I think even this morning or yesterday just told me this exact same thing. Cause like Wait, at the, end of the day, I just yesterday or this morning, you said some days uh, you know like we'll come together at the end of the day and she'll be venting to me about her day and I'm trying to solve these problems. I'm like, okay, well if you didn't, this and you and your friend aren't getting along, why don't you send her this email or um, if this yes. is going on with you know your at your work or whatever? And then and she's like, I really just kind of want to vent to you and just have you kind of listen to me and and I'm like what trying to figure out let's solve all these problems and. I don't know, right. just kind of a different... It's very way male. Communicating
0: and- that's a really common scenario. And what most women don't understand about the male brain is that when you put a problem in front of a guy, let's like even a Rubik's cube, for example, you just set it there on the table, your brain immediately starts to think, how would I go about solving that problem? If you see a neighbor across the street and his lawnmower is tipped over and he's got some tools out there, you start to go, oh, I wonder what's going on over there. And you, you end up wandering over there. And before you know it, there's three or four other guys in the neighborhood all gathered around Bob looking and pointing at his lawnmower, right? Because there's a problem to be solved. And the human, the male brain, it's, it's the frontal cortex of it, it lights up it just like in a way that a woman's brain does not do that. And so it allows a guy to just want to immediately go to problem solving. And in marriage or in a love relationship, that's not always the... Nicest thing to do, because the woman doesn't want a problem solved sometimes. She just wants it explored. Let's talk about it.
2: I guess my question on that is like, how do we each sort of temper our gender traits to be able to communicate more effectively? If I need to share with Brandon about this terrible thing that happened in my day that maybe I could have solved or he could solve right now, mm-hmm. but I just want to tell him, should I describe it differently? Should he respond differently?
0: Well, first you need to take the the Better Love Assessment
2: because okay. gonna help you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then, secondly, you need to understand two things. Each of you need to understand one thing about the other person that they're probably not top of mind. And the the number one thing for a man is that he needs to cherish a woman. And most guys don't even know what the word cherish means. And so, if you keep that in front of mind. When you're interacting in a conversation, you're, you're tempted to problem solve and you're thinking, how do I cherish this woman? What does that mean to cherish her? That's enough to kind of help you press the pause button, pull back from this compulsive need to solve her problem and go, oh, how would I feel if I were in her shoes as her right now, right? And then you realize, oh, she doesn't want her problem solved. She wants me to sympathize with her. She, in fact, she wants me to affirm the problem. She wants to almost have me, and, and this is so counterintuitive to a guy's brain, but sometimes it feels like we're making the problem bigger than the problem actually is for her to feel affirmed in having a problem. And so-
2: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That is so good and true. is <laughs> so
0: <also> true though. <laughs> <laughs> See,
2: I just, I just want you to say, oh, I hate that for you. Yeah. That was the worst.
0: And here's the interesting thing, because most guys get intimidated by this, but when you begin to reflect feelings back to a woman, that's what opens up her spirit. And so not just, you know, repeating the words, but to really listen with the third ear, almost like you're panning for gold, sifting through all the verbiage to find that little golden nugget of emotion and hand it back to her and go, hey, here, is this how you feel? Is this, a, are you feeling mm-hmm. kind of sad about this? And here's the thing that guys need to know when you do that with a genuine, authentic heart, you can be dead wrong and it still works because she knows you're being authentic and she's going to go, well, no, it's not so much sad. I'm really more angry than I am sad. And that's just going to open her up even more. And so the more that, and guys, I just have seen this happen so many times where a, a guy just doesn't believe it. And he starts to do it as a technique. And if you do it as a technique, it falls flat. But if you do it from your heart Hmm. and you start to reflect back her feeling, it's incredible what happens and the dividends are remarkable. That is
2: such a good takeaway. Thank you. I love that.
0: And so for women, on the other side of the equation, why women get so frustrated that a man isn't opening up is because she wants to go out to have coffee and let's talk and let's go to a nice dinner and we'll talk. And guys don't talk like that. Guys need an activity. You want your man to open up, go jogging with him, go you know, play tennis with him, go, go do something that he likes, go ride around the golf cart while he hits balls or whatever. And it's in the context of an activity that a man's spirit will open up. And there's stacks of research on this that most women don't know about. And it's so frustrating to a woman because she thinks that we plan this nice date and we go out and he just doesn't have anything to say. And uh, yeah, because it's not an activity. Guys don't call up other guys and go, hey, you want to get together and talk? You know. Yeah. Uh, we go hunt, we go fish, we go to the game, we go to a movie, we go do something That's in the so context true. of doing that. And it can be something as simple as walking. Here in Seattle, you know, we have uh, this lake that Leslie and I walk at least twice a week called Green Lake. And we have our best conversations that we ever have walking around that lake, not sitting in leather chairs, looking at each other, going, let's talk now.
2: Another takeaway I had from our sessions with you is you said that men really need and want a playmate. They want someone that is their partner who can play with them. I think that that I'll never forget that. That was the best.
1: So, Les, you were involved in starting eHarmony. What was your role in that and... Tell us a little bit about the timing of that, right? Because the internet was just taking off at the time.
0: Yeah, so let me be real clear. Neil Clark Warren is the founder of eHarmony, but uh, when we had this lovely dinner together in in Pasadena at their home talking about uh, this whole thing and and how it could impact the divorce rate and so on, we eventually got the thing built and the issue of selling it. How do you get people to actually come online to find the love of their life? That's not an easy, easy sell. So we went to Dallas. Of all the cities in the country, Dallas had the most singles. It had um, a lot of places where we thought we could kind of plug into, where it would be the easiest, and we just could not make the needle move. I mean, and there were nights where it was just like, well, it's, it's not going to work. We're, we're losing money, and, uh, and we had a lot of money in this thing, and we had uh, venture capital money, and, and it was just not working. And then uh, a radio broadcast uh, helped us, and it was a tipping point, and it just kind of moved the needle. And we used to always joke, you know, well, we got Susan, you know, Susan's online, <laughs> let's find her a date, you know, I got the one <laughs> client. and uh, And eventually we got more than just Susan on there. And so it just took off after that like a hockey stick, and people realized the value of when you bring the science to mm-hmm. the endeavor of romance and love and increase your odds. We used to liken it, what would you pay to get into a room with 20 people that have been screened, that have been filtered, that are great matches for you? They meet your criteria. On top of that, we know what they do to match well with your personality. What would you pay to get into a room and just mingle around with those people for an hour? You'd pay a lot of money to do that, right? And so in a sense, that's what we were doing through this new vehicle, the internet, was just giving people a space to meet people they wouldn't meet otherwise.
2: And it turned into this cultural phenomenon. I mean,
0: yeah.
2: it's incredible.
0: Yeah. And, and
2: so you brought the research to it. It sounds like that was your role in that. Well,
0: we were all about lifelong love. This mm-hmm. wasn't a hookup. This wasn't just about getting together. And there's plenty of sites these days, of course, that just do that. And there's yeah. no science behind it. And, and you swipe left or right, and that's how it is. Uh, we were invested in helping couples Achieve lifelong love, and that's why we brought the science to it these days, of course, there's a million different sites you can find uh if you're looking for a farmer, there's <laughs> sites you can go to match with a farmer out there, literally so yeah yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. seeing the commercials yeah so you have sitting in your office right now, and your books are lined near the top of the ceiling all the way around your
0: office. How many books have you written? um I don't know, I don't really count them, but um, over a, a couple dozen for sure. The latest book is called uh, Love Like That, which is the result of a long time personal quest that uh, I really wanted to understand love at the highest levels. And, ooh,
2: I love that. Is this like being your very best self?
0: It's like that, but what it came from this little phrase in scripture where the Apostle Paul talks about loving like Jesus and describes this extravagant love. And mm-hmm. then at the end of it, this little three word sentence, love like that. And I remember the first time I read that, I was like, are you kidding me? How are you supposed to love like that, this turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile? And it's like saying to somebody, hey, tomorrow you need to start climbing Mount Everest. It's like, what, I yeah. can't do that. And so I really wanted to understand that at a practical level to forget the theology, forget the any of that kind of stuff. How do you just begin to even love my wife, my kids, strangers, my colleagues, my team members? How do you begin to love people at the highest levels? And so it set me off on a quest. I literally went over to Israel. I followed around the footsteps of Jesus. I wanted to know where did he preach that, that Sermon on the Mount where he, he said, "Hey, you want to do something revolutionary in your relationships?" He said, "Don't just walk the first mile, walk another mile that people don't see happening. You know things like that. I wanted to really kind of get into this as deeply as I could. And I came up with these five things in the book that uh, are practical ways to begin to love at the highest levels. And as you might guess, we have a little assessment that's for free for people that are by the book, they can go online and, and assess where am I at on those five things and take it a month later, see how you're growing on those five things. The first one, by the way, is, is being more mindful. Hmm. If you wanna love at the highest levels, you have to see what other people don't see. Hmm. You have to see something in Brandon that nobody else has seen in Brandon in his day if you want to love Mm -hmm. him at the highest levels. Oh, well,
2: I can start by that because I speak his language. You know, Brandon has his own language. Some people don't understand what he's saying. It's called Brandonese. He'll be like, he'll say something and I'll be like, actually, actually what he means is this. Oh yeah, okay. (laughs) For example, Lake Chelan is Lake Chelan, but Brandon calls it Lake Wenatchee. Mm -hmm. We don't know why, but I know what he
0: means, you know. Well, there's medication for that
1: too. Wow. (laughs) Let's just pile on me now. (laughs) All right.
2: Oh my gosh, well, I think we need to read that book together. That's incredible. I love I love the theme of that book because that resonates with my feelings in going into a second marriage together. Brandon and I are getting married for a second time and and wanting to bring our best selves to the table of this yeah. marriage. And I think that you know, nothing is more important than that. And it's hard, it's hard. We're watching the show together called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. Because Brandon told me that couples who are in love need to have a show they watch together. Mm. (laughs) And I struggle with falling asleep, you know, while watching television, but I'm doing my best to stay awake for the show. But there's this hilarious scene where the woman, Mrs. Maisel, she is sort of a newlywed. They have small children and her husband falls asleep and she goes to sleep, quote unquote, with her makeup on. She waits until he starts to snore and then he she runs to the bathroom and scrubs off her makeup, puts her face mask on and goes back to bed. But she wakes before the crack of dawn to t- put her makeup back on because she wants to be perfect for him. And although that's crazy in 1950s, mm-hmm. it also spoke to me that you know, she's trying to be lovely for him in every way. The
1: show takes place in
2: the 1950s. Clearly I'm not doing that for you, Brandon. But I also think that it's lovely when we can try to not fall into a rut and this familiar you know, nature where we don't try to be our best selves with each other, yeah. you know?
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, beyond the makeup, the most important is, is the, the insides, right? And, yeah. and in fact, my next book is is basically built on the premise that your relationship can only be as healthy as you are. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what we want to give is our best self, psychologically, emotionally, religiously, spiritually, however you want to categorize it. We want to give the best that we are to that yeah. person that we love because your relationship can only be as healthy as the two of you.
2: Yeah, I love that. Okay, Les, I think that in this age we're living in, I think we're seeing people more and more afraid of the M-word marriage couples are waiting longer and longer to get married, which maybe isn't a bad thing at all. I think that people are frightened of a legal commitment and a moral commitment and the fear of failure and all of this. And I know you're a big proponent of marriage. And I wonder if you could just get on your soapbox and tell us why you still believe in marriage and why it is beneficial to both a man and a woman. I'm just thinking back to the things you said to us in previous sessions and would love for our listeners to hear some of that. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things we know about the current marriage and divorce rate these days is people are indeed waiting longer. And that's not a bad thing, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. to wait longer. The issue, of course, is that the cohabitation rate is higher than it's ever been before. And the research is interesting on this because it makes intuitive sense that uh, you would want to live together before you get married as kind of a trial run. What we however know from several studies is that those couples that do that kind of are lulled into a, the researchers call it sliding rather than deciding, they kind of slide into the long-term relationship without making a decision on it because it's kind of like, You know, maybe they got together for financial reasons or practical reasons, whatever the reasons were at the beginning. And they're getting a certain kind of perspective on what that relationship looks like that may not end up really being what it feels like to be married to that person because we know once you cross that proverbial threshold of marriage, the dynamic of the relationship changes. It just can't help but to do that. Men tend to move more from wooing that woman to providing a living for that woman. And of course, every couple is different, but that's the the general trend. And then we also know that most people, when it comes to lifelong love, the concept of love is too many times built on feelings rather than the covenant or the the commitment of marriage. And in fact, research at uh, Yale University years ago, maybe 25 years ago now, has showed this incredible, really useful model of love. This guy calls it the triangular theory of love, which sounds like a major sleeper, but it's super practical. He said, when you look at love and you think of it as a triangle, on one side, there is passion. That's the biological side. That's the part of love that got the two of you together in the first place because there was some spark, there was chemistry, there was something flirtatious and exciting about it all. That's all the biological stuff of love. And... So many couples will come into my office years after getting married going, hey, we've lost that love and feeling. And what they mean is we don't have passion at a 10 out of 10 every day of the week, every week out of the year, all the them are. And, and you're not supposed to because love is fluid on that side. Love is, is, it's not a static thing that you check off, you know, your to-do list in the morning. It's just something that is, you know, changing ever. And then on the other side of the triangle, counter to passion is intimacy. And that's the emotional side of love. Whereas passion is biological, you know, intimacy is emotional. And that's the part of love that starts to get at part of the longevity of your relationship because you start to write this narrative together that only the two of you understand mm. because you start to go through stuff that nobody else really cares about except the two of you. I'll give you one quick and dramatic example. When Leslie and I had our first uh, baby, he was born three months premature, weighed a pound. And uh, he was in Swedish hospital and he was on a million different machines, and you know, everything's keeping him alive. He's going through surgeries, all kinds of stuff. And you know, we know enough about marriage to know that in those times, that either pulls you apart or pulls you closer together. And it was, it was rough, really rough. And Leslie was in the hospital for three months. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, John, uh, our son was in, she was in the hospital three months before he was born. And then he was in three months after he was born with all kinds of procedures. When he came home from that, our house was quarantined for a little while. He had a little oxygen tank he had to be connected to. We had multiple 911 calls. It was just crazy. Mm -hmm. And when life started to get a little bit more normal and we could put him on a little baby blanket and he'd be there in the living room, and an exciting evening for us was just to sit there and watch him for hours. Like, oh, look mm. at that. He made a little noise, you know. Uh, soon we found that our friends didn't find that nearly as enthralling as we did, right? Uh, Are <laughs> we gonna go over and watch Les and Leslie's baby again? You know, not the most exciting thing if you're not part of that narrative at the, at the innermost levels, <laughs> but we could have cared less. Didn't matter mm. whether anybody, we, we understood it. Have you ever been in a situation where like a social setting where something happens and the two of you crack up laughing and you look around the room and nobody else is laughing. Oh, all
2: right? the time,
1: yes.
0: That, that's intimacy, mm-hmm. that's intimacy. And so anyway, that's what that side of the love. And then on the base of the triangle is commitment. So you have passion, intimacy, and then commitment. And commitment is the willful part of love. You can think of these as the hot, warm, and cold ingredients of love.
2: Oh, I love that. And
0: yeah. so commitment is the part of love that says, in spite of all the uncertainty in my life, in spite of... All the stuff that swirls about me, I can't quite pin down. I'm gonna make one thing in my life rock solid and that's my relationship with you. Where does that come from? Your hormones? Of course not. Your emotions? Of course not. Comes from your will. This is the Mm. part of love that truly is a decision. And so when you get married, of course, that's the bedrock of it is the commitment. That's the most public and most dramatic commitment we ever make, right? Uh, Publicly, we have a ceremony about it that we're making this covenant, this agreement together. And so that's the challenge, that's the scary part, right? Because what does the future hold? But when you have passion, intimacy and commitment fulfilled at a 10 out of 10, life doesn't get much sweeter, right? Mm. Now, I also tell newlyweds, if you ever wake up some morning and you have all three of those ingredients at a 10 out of 10 and you roll over to your spouse and they have all three of those ingredients at a 10 out of 10, you know, take the day off work because it's going to be a pretty good day, right? <laughs> but don't expect to wake up every morning in your married life with all three of those because love is very fluid. Love is not static. The kind of love you have today is not the a, kind of love you're going to have 10 days That's a great
2: reminder. That's yeah. a great reminder. I think so many people get discouraged when things aren't perfect or when something goes wrong. Yeah. You know, love is fluid, life is fluid yeah. and it's how we react and respond. Yeah. and
0: Yeah, And sometimes all you can hold on to is that commitment. Uh And by the way, the commitment isn't always at a 10 out of 10. The big I do, that's the big commitment, but there's an energy level in that commitment that is also... Uh, ebbs and flows like the tide. And it's because I have a project. I got a writing right, deadline. Right. I got a thing at work. I got There's illness. There's kids that have a crisis. There's whatever, a million different things that distract us from being at a 10 out of 10 in our energy level that we bring into that commitment. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is very dynamic. Mm-hmm. And when we understand that in the dance of marriage, we can embrace it, and if we step on each other's toes every once in a while in the dance, we get it. That's okay. We make mistakes, and we keep moving forward because we're committed.
2: How do you and your wife do that dance? I always wonder. With two super smart psychologists in this field of relationships, do you say, you know, I'm, uh, it's an eight out of ten for me right now? Like, do you act? Are you really open with each other about this stuff? <laughs> do you use like your research to discuss your relationship? <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, it's it's the kind of thing where you know sometimes somebody will come up when we're speaking and say hey, how can we pray for you? And, and I'll say that we do what we already know to do. We don't need to learn anything new, you know yeah. what I mean? It's just that we got to put it into practice. And so that's always the challenge. But uh, when you've said that in that very, where well, you're sitting on that very couch, not too long ago, Leslie was sitting there and it was about, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning. And we were looking at our calendar And it was like not a good, happy conversation because she was saying things like, I didn't agree to go to that city with you and that date. And I I told you about it. You were standing in the kitchen and blah, 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 blah. Well, I didn't sign off on it, blah, blah. And it was one of those kind of conversations. And she said, uh, conflict card. And I said, oh, the thing we teach other couples? Okay, let's try it, you know? (laughs) And the conflict card is just a simple little technique to rate the depth of your disagreement in that moment. And I said, uh, this is like a six for me. It had to do with a thing I had to speak at at a university. And I really wanted her there with me. She wasn't going to be speaking, but I really wanted her there for moral support for a variety of reasons. It was an emotional talk for me and blah, blah, blah. And I said, this is like a six for me. I I Mm -hmm. really want you to be there. And she said, let's go to bed. This is like a three for me. I don't know why I'm, yeah. I'm so vocal. We're both expressive. So when you ask- We are
2: too, I get this, yeah. <laughs> yes. So she says it's a three, you say it's a six. Then in the morning, did you mm-hmm. come to the compromise?
0: We came to the compromise in that very instant. Leslie was the-
2: Okay, so she gave in with her three.
0: Yeah, she, and wouldn't, you say, won. she wouldn't say she gave in or somebody won. It's like the relationship won. You the know?
2: Rela- I love that, yeah. that's so good. There's oh, no, Brandon, no. let's copy that. We're gonna copy
0: it. <laughs> we, you know, one of our boys plays a lot of soccer. And so when you have a kid that plays a lot of soccer, you watch a lot of soccer games where you have a lot of free time on the sidelines. And Leslie said one day, she said, our relationship is like this game. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, when we have a problem that we're arguing about, we're not on opposite sides. We're on the same team. We're just trying to get the ball down there. And so we're kicking the issue around. We're kicking the problem around until we can get a goal scored. Right. And that's what it's about.
2: That Um, is really what it's about. Oh my gosh. I love that.
1: Have you ever referenced a chapter that maybe she's written or she's done that to you? Like, well, if you remember in our third book, that chapter you wrote, perhaps (laughs) you should. That
0: would be Dirty Pool. Neither of us have done that. That was a joke. That was a joke.
2: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Les, I could talk to you all day with Brandon. We've had so much fun.
0: Hey, this is a blast and I'm so glad to be on your podcast. I think it's great that you guys are doing this and uh, it's just really fun. And thanks for helping me get the word out on some of our resources, uh, the Better Love Assessment and my latest book, uh, Love Like That. And of course, our classic, the one that just keeps going and going, saving your marriage before it starts. So thanks for having me on. And awesome. an honor. Thank, Thank
2: you. you. Check back here soon for all the latest updates and... As always, we are mod about you.